So welcome back to season two, episode two of the Photog's Sake podcast. Today we've got a really exciting and hot button topic for you, which is reactivity. As always, you've got me, Louise Campbell-Pearson, um, founder and trainer at Canine Friends, training and behaviour, and we've got the lovely Jay Gurdon. Yep, of Good Guardianship, and I also have Blue Mar Minion. And we've got a brilliant guest on today. You're going to be really excited to hear from him. Um, you may have seen him on Instagram. It's Simon Moody from The Mutt Nut. Hey, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, uh, yeah, looking forward to today's episode and we'll get into some stuff. So, yeah, on today's episode, we're going to kind of focus first and foremost on kind of empathy and understanding. Um, it is not your fault if you have a reactive dog. It, you know, there, of course, maybe things you could have done better in the earlier stages, but you don't know what you don't know. And you'll have heard that in our early episodes and podcasts, particularly with separation anxiety. So whilst there may have been a few different things that could have been done differently, you've got genetics, you've got um, exposure to the environment around them. These are all things that we cannot control. Um, and so we kind of need to be looking at a dog's the overall picture of a dog. There is no one size fits all with any part of dog training and behavior, but in particular with reactivity, because we want to be looking at breed genetics, their drivers, their motivators. We want to be looking at their exposure, what they've had so far in their life. And we want to be kind of using that and utilizing that within our training. I'm sure Simon, that's something that you're kind of going to look at first when you're going into cases, looking at the dog itself, looking at their experiences, looking at the owners, things yeah, like 100%. that. I mean, when I approach a case, for those that don't know me, reactivity is pretty much the main bread and butter of what I do whilst working with other cases as well but typically reactivity falling under the bracket of sort of dogs who are anxious dog, dogs are underconfident obviously there's other there's other behaviors with that as well but yeah particularly with reactivity I work closely with rescues as well as a consultant so I tend to go in and help um several days a week with different rescues that I work with but yeah ultimately whether it's working one-to-one or in rescue or whatever it is I tend to have like a I don't know if you want to call it a pie chart Basically, we sort of eight different segments, and I teach this and I talk about this with with my clients as well. And it's understanding first of all the dog's lifestyle, everything you've said there, reinforcement history to diet, medical issues. Obviously, you've got the unwanted behaviours as well. But yeah, there's loads of different factors to take into consideration first and foremost, so that we can get a proper in-depth understanding of what is actually going on in the dog's day-to-day life. First of all. Yeah, and also an understanding of, say, if it's in a rescue situation, the realistic environment that they're in, but also in a one-to-one, like the um, looking at the owner or guardian, whatever you like to call it, whatever language you like to choose, you know, how they're feeling, how it's impacting them and how we can realistically approach this in both empathy towards the dog, but also the human involved if there is one in that instance. And whether or not that is a one-to-one pay client or at a rescue, looking at the staff, how can we help to prepare the staff to be able to manage and look after these dogs so that we're looking after ev- after everyone's mental health in it and not just the dog, it is also about humans involved. 100%. I mean, for those that know me on Instagram, I talk a lot about human behavior, changing human behavior in order to get the results that you're looking for out of your dog. Because at the end of the day, obviously, with us being, dare I say this, use this word, more dominant animal in the sense that we're the ones that are paying the bills, buying the dog food, taking the dog in the cat. Do you know what I mean? That's the, the reason I use that terminology. You know, if we're in a situation where we're particularly, like I say, as you said yourself, maybe our mental health isn't in the perfect or best place, or maybe we simply just don't have the understanding, and we've got maybe a million and one different opinions it can be really difficult to understand where we even start but also changing our patterns in behavior we know we as humans on a daily basis is something i love to talk about we have our own coping strategies do you know what i mean we look constantly we constantly seek comfort and reassurance on a daily basis 
whether you realize you're doing it or not. So it's very much understanding how we can look to change the patterns in our behavior so that we can then effectively set that dog up to be able to succeed in whatever it is that we're particularly looking to do. So if you were um, going to see a one-to-one client and you kind of, you know, it was the sort of lower end of the scale, just reactive dog, say dog reactive dog. So to those of you that aren't dog trainers, reactivity, by the way, is when your dog is reacting to an external stimulus. This could be to a person, this could be to another dog. But let's say if you, Simon, were going and seeing a dog reactive case um, and it was just at this stage, there's no bite history. They're just very vocal, but you'll either observe and you think this is definitely from fear. What are the kind of things you're going to go in and sort of look at teaching the owner to work with this dog sort of, sort of off the from the off? It de- obviously, it depends on the first thing I'm looking for. I'm going to repeat myself, but it's the lifestyle of the dog. So I'm going to mm-hmm. look at what is that dog doing on a daily basis? What outlets has that dog got to what we'd call the predatory sequence? For those that know what that means. For those that don't, essentially, you can stop and think about your dog. They are a predator. They're designed to run, chase, grab, and potentially kill things. Not that we would let them necessarily have access to all of that, but the point I'm making is, most of the dogs that I go and tend to see, a lot of the time the lifestyles are extremely poor in the sense that for somebody that's worked over overseas with stray dogs and dogs on the streets, some of the most chilled out, content, happy dogs I've ever met have been on the streets. That is not, <laughs> I'm, what I'm not saying is all dogs therefore should live on the street. That's not what I'm saying. But the point that I'm raising, those dogs got to get up, got to use a brain, got to scavenge, got to effectively, like you say, have access to that predator sequence of finding something using the nose. Um, so what I'm saying is they've got a huge amount of stimulation in their day-to-day life before much else really happens. Compare that to domesticated dogs, they probably had a huge amount of rest overnight, then restricted either on a lead, in a garden, behind a fence, behind a window, potentially being left for even longer periods of rest. And then, like I say, they're being put into a situation that causes them a certain element of stress or triggers them in a certain way. And then instantly where people are ramming training down the dog's throat. And it's in a situation where it's like, again, think about the bigger picture. The dog has not potentially got a lot going on. The dog values things in a certain lifestyle way more than they potentially probably should do or maybe do to the next door neighbor's dog or your friend's dog or your mum's dog or whatever it might be. So first and foremost, it's about understanding the dog's current lifestyle. How can we actually change that? How can we give the dog access to feel good? I don't, what I'm, what I'm not keen on is bowling into somebody's house and going, right, boom, training now, go. Because again, it, sometimes it might be, this is the thing and I'm sure we'll get into it. This, every case, every dog is individual. So, so some dogs you might hit the ground running with training, yeah, 100%. Some dogs you might not because that dog just it just wouldn't serve the dog for one minute. So the, I guess the point I'm trying to raise is my first priority is always, is there an area in the dog's life that we can provide stress relief, enrichment, can we structure things differently for the exact same reasons as explained then? Then once we've got that into place, so whether it's again, one, two weeks of doing X, Y, and Z. Then I would look to introduce and begin training, which I'm sure we'll get into in a second. But in a nutshell, I want to know what's going on in that dog's life on a daily basis, the quality of the, the quality of the dog's exercise, the quality of the dog's everything from the diet, the medical history, the reinforcement history, how many times are they exposed to these triggers, what repetition have they got? Because again, all it takes is when I, I talk about this in my reactivity series, you can take, say for example, when I speak to people, they go on two, let's say three dog walks a day. Sometimes, literally, I've had numbers as big as 10 where the dog has reacted to 10 different dogs on three walks, three times a day. Times that by, like I say, you only have to times that by, let's say, let's take a basic figure of 10, 30 times a day, times that by seven, times that by four in a month. You've got a serious amount of repetition. So that's what I'm saying to begin with. Before I'm like, right, do this, do that, do this, do that, where somebody's unlikely to have any decent handling skills. If this is the first time they've maybe worked with a trainer before, 
I'm not going to sit here and go, right, I need you to do X, Y, and Z in regards to training. When I think the dog's lifestyle's a mess, the dog is constantly repeating an unwanted behaviour, and then we're going to all of a sudden chuck training in the mix. Just going to turn into a complete mess, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into training at some point today, but typically, that's what I would, my main, the first things that I'd be looking for when I go and see a case. Jay, what about you? How would you how would you approach things? Would you sort of do things in a similar way? And and kind of, I know I do when I work with reactive cases. It's I do a pre-consultation assessment. We are looking at diet. We are looking at how much exercise, what type of exercise. Is it just a 10-minute run around the block on the lead? Or is it long lines and freedom? Is it sniff time? Is it, you know, we, there's so much that we need to look at. And also on top of that, are they getting enough mental stimulation for the breed uh, traits that maybe they have for example is that similar with you jay yeah very much the same um you're wanting that full history because if you haven't got the full picture you know there can so easily be things in there that you miss as well as like medical conditions as well like is there, is there anything underlying medical that we're missing well yeah i mean there, there is a very good reason one of the first questions that any responsible trainer slash behaviorist will ask is you know when's the last time the dog saw the vet are there any underlying conditions because we, we describe react reactivity is basically when a dog overreacts to a stimulus in comparison to how they should do. And there are so many different things that can play into elevating those stress levels that, that can sort of have them up there. So again, I'll, I'll look at a very similar sort of things. Um, and I tend to approach it by looking to start with how we can decompress, how we can take the pressure off. And this is for both the dog and the people, because it is stressful being the person taking that dog out for the walk. You you don't understand Mm -hmm. in the initial stages why they're doing what they're doing. You just know as soon as you step out the front door, you tense up. And of course, you're connected by a lead. They pick up on that. You're physically Mm -hmm. connected by a lead and they're going to pick up on that. They're incredibly sensitive. There was a study that came out last week that um, shows that dogs can pick up stress by scent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we I literally talked about that last week with with someone else, and and that they can they can smell the differences in our pheromones. I would guess you'd call them, or you know, cortisol and things like that when they come yeah, out. Yeah, it was hormone hormone levels in the sweat. I think was, I, yeah. I can't remember exactly how they phrased it, but. Yeah, and one of the things that, that always strikes me the most is when you first talk to people and you say to them, right, so we need to take this stress out so we're not going to go for walks. And they just look at you like, what? No, we're not going to go out. We're not going to be exposed to those stresses for a while. And It's just sort of getting them to get their heads around the fact that, you know, we're going to bring in the mental stimulation and add interest into the dog's day without forcing them to confront these these triggers i sometimes do that i sometimes have a two-week reset with clients when they're extremely reactive and they're just not having a break from that stress and cortisol levels that are we know that stays in the system up to 72 hours um and like you were saying simon like when you've got a dog potentially seeing this the stimulus but another dog 30 times every day you're never going to get that stuff to kind of calm down unless they're having maybe perhaps a little bit of a break and then we start to reintroduce these things at a level with which the dog can cope within reason obviously we can't um you know stop them having walks forever it's not a realistic approach long term but it can help in the short term whilst we kind of calm the system down um and and things like that so i i do get that as well that kind of having a bit of a reset there can help with cases yeah it's something that kind of goes along with what you're saying yeah, after the the reset then we go back to starting to expose them to these things like at a level do you find simon there's an awful lot of issues with, with people where they they just can't read the dog's body language so they can't recognize when the dog is starting to hit 
the point where they're worrying about something before mm-hmm. they react. You know, when you get that thing where they're starting to become concerned. Yeah, definitely. I think body language is something that is, it's the bread and butter of dog behaviour, certainly is for me anyway, in terms of, yeah, essentially, if we can understand that, obviously, speaking to you guys, obviously, you know, you know what I'm talking about, but in terms of understanding dog's body language, which gives us an indication of how the dog's feeling, which in turn then tells us, obviously, what sort of emotions the dogs are experiencing. And we know, obviously, emotion drives behaviour. So, yeah, essentially, body language is something that fascinates me. It still does now, even with people, not just dogs, but dogs in particular, obviously. But yeah, it can. And again, when I I, I train quite a lot in rescue centres, training staff and volunteers and things like that, which is something I thoroughly enjoy. But yeah, body language is something that I always say. Like, if you're going to remember anything, if you're going to learn anything, body language is key because you can prevent things from happening, or you can prevent things from scaling up to, you know, essentially not as a big of a problem if you're picking up on like I say the dog's body language but yeah getting people to understand the little tiny little things so whether that can be sometimes obviously I'm not going to go into the whole whole depth of body language but the little things from dogs holding the breath to effectively even situations where I always remind people just because I mean this is from myself I've worked in rescue quite a lot as well so I've done thousands and thousands of of what we'd class as a pre-intake assessment, so on assessing a dog to come into a centre, we basically say yes or no. And that, that was previously where I've worked for independent rescues, i worked for dog trusts for quite a lot of years as well. But even things like what I always say to people now, even when I'm going into somebody's house or to explain something to a client, just because a dog isn't trying to savage you or trying to savage another dog doesn't mean that the dog's necessarily comfortable. They're just the dog proactively not avoiding, not approaching mm-hmm. a situation. Obviously, it's an easy one when you can see a dog's going to walk off from something the dog walks away from something, you think, oh, the dog's probably a little bit uncomfortable. But I always say, if the dog's not actively approaching as well, so if I go in a house and the dog doesn't come over, I'll probably ignore the dog because I think, well, the dog's had ample opportunity to come and say hello. So I think everyone that owns a dog or chooses to interact yeah. with a dog should have or should try and learn a little bit about canine behaviour because it can only promote your your bond, even if your dog doesn't have behavioural issues. And when you see and when you see the dog like really politely asking for space and it's being ignored, and that's when you get those behaviours that can escalate, um, because you kind of allow a regression and things like that it means that those lower listeners, if you don't know what that is, look up the term ladder of aggression on Google. It's a really, really good way. Some images, good images come up mm. of of what the a dog will do lower level wise to show you maybe they're uncomfortable. Um, and if lower the lower level stuff, a few examples, turning the head away, facial tension, lip licking, yawns, things like that. If they're ignored repeatedly, and this applies to reactivity they are likely going to escalate those behaviours to get what they want from that situation. So the more we learn about our dogs on a general level or whether it comes to working with reactivity, the more we'll spot those signs, which is what Jay was referring to, of when the dog is starting to get stressed so we can manage and act accordingly rather than waiting for it to get to the point where the dog feels they need to escalate to a bark, a lunge or a bite. That's an excellent point. I mean, dogs are results driven. They do what works. So... If those lower level signals, like an excellent one is the head turn. It's one that you see so many people they don't recognise. They think the dog's just looking at something over there. They don't realise that the dog's actually you know, saying, I don't want to engage. If that repeatedly doesn't work, they then, you know, they go up the steps of the ladder to they get to the point of a growl. Well, growling, that makes people back off. And if this keeps happening, then what is the point in them doing these lower level behaviours when a growl works? And what you end up doing, you end up with mm-hmm. a dog who would skip straight past those lower levels to the growl because it, it's just counterproductive for them to do anything else. For me, this actually leads quite nicely into kind of some of the causes of reactivity. So being on a lead is a really unnatural thing for a dog 
Um, as Simon was saying, like dogs are scavengers. They, you know, they're predatory. They do all these things that kind of are not normal in the domesticated environment. And so if you get another dog approaching your dog on the lead and you're going, greet each other, you know, have play. If a dog is not enjoying that interaction, they don't have the freedom to walk off. And this is one of the things where in puppies in particular, if you have a slightly anxious dog, this is where that can breed that reactivity that maybe wasn't present. If we would have just given that dog a bit of space in those formative um, kind of months uh, in those socialization period and things like that. So it, it really, really can make a difference with stopping your dog from escalating their behaviours to the point of reactivity if we're acknowledging the small ones and giving them the space. And that applies to dog-human interactions and dog-on-dog interactions because, you know, six months like gregarious Labrador Fenton may not equally know the signs of of wanting to back off from an older dog perhaps as well because they haven't learned that yet. They haven't had enough exposure. They maybe haven't been appropriately socialised or whatever. Uh, it might just be in their temperament. And if they're continually going up to these like older dogs, younger dogs, puppies, and you're allowing your dog to go up to the pup- dogs and, and they're on a lead, they then equally don't have the choice. It's just, there's so many things where we can have an element of control in, in this stuff if we're watching our own dogs, watching approaching dogs and things like that. Kind of going off a bit of a tangent, but yeah. And that, that goes back to the, the body language thing again, because if you watch loose dogs approaching each other, they don't go head to head. They, they will not go nose to nose. They have these curving lines where they approach mm. each other because we've all seen the embarrassing thing with dogs where they they greet everyone, be it person, dogs with you know nose straight to the back end or yeah. up underneath. <laughs> but that is normal canine greeting behaviour. Mm-hmm. They they get the information gathered before they get anywhere near each other's faces. So as humans, you have two dogs on leads. We tend to walk straight at each other, which so yeah, that's that's really. I suppose you could put it as that's rude in dog terms. It's confrontational. Yeah. So you're immediately, probably without even realising, creating a stressful situation. And then you have your dog on this six-foot lead, so they can't move away. They can't get away from what's causing them stress. And, yeah, it's it's not going to go well. It's important to say as well, this isn't the case for every dog. Some dogs are fine with that. Um, or some dogs learn that that's normal part of dog dog and dog greeting. Um, but if you do have a dog that pay, pay, maybe is a bit more anxious or a bit on the fearful side anyway, maybe something's happened, maybe it's just the way that they are, maybe it's their genetics. If we are... Um, continually exposing those dogs in these scenarios that can mean that that they do escalate their behavior to the point of reactivity um for example my mum's cockapoo um it would absolutely never ever bother him however a dog ever greeted him because he's just that way luna my cocker spaniel very sensitive she's very she picks up on very subtle subtleties so i always teach in my puppy classes um people don't don't approach on lead like on lead interactions are really unnatural teach your dog to be on a lead and used to walking and passing by other dogs rather than forcing them to greet let them off the lead and let them have a little play of interaction get a long line going and recall them back kind of get all this stuff going that's a bit more normal and they can move a bit more natural um because i see a lot of the case need frustration as well um leads can be a real problem with reactivity and it can make things a lot worse do you do you guys find that as well? Yeah, de- definitely. And one, yeah, one thing definitely. I always talk about a lot is lead pressure and making lead pressure a good thing because ultimately, like I know a lot of people will say we want to keep the lead slack, which I totally agree. But the real reality of it, particularly like I work with a lot of people who live in cities, like 
probably similar to you guys. I've worked with people all, the way, all around the world where I've got like clients in Toronto or somebody maybe in New York or even just Manchester or somewhere built up in the UK. Like ultimately, like you are going to, you are going to unfortunately encounter the fact where the dog is going to run at the end of the lead or get to the end of the lead. Or you're going to have to use a lead one way or another. Yeah, we prefer not to. We'd rather keep tension on the lead, but it's going to happen. So in terms of teaching things like the importance of lead pressure, meaning something rather than it just being oh shit, something something bad's going to happen. So from an early, either an early age or even just be, first of all, just beginning indoors, teaching the fact that lead pressure means to orientate back to your hand to mum or dad or whatever, and obviously going to be met for that reinforcement as well. That's something that. I, I, I'm really, really big into and obviously making it making it an instruction, but making it something positive, making it something so that, again, I tend to find within reactivity, it's that fine balance for me of you want the dog to feel like they have choice 100%. That's really, really important, something I never shut up about. But also sometimes for some dogs, it's actually having instruction, I find, depending on the breed. So like a classic example, like German Shepherd. Like a lot of the time I tend to find, not always, not every single Shepherd out there, but just as an easy example, they like instruction. They like not that doesn't mean you bollock into them. That means do this, do this now, and I'll be reinforced and you'll be reinforced for it. I feel like sometimes it can be it can be something that can be really useful. So having something like that in your toolkit with the dog's like, right, yeah, I know what this means. I'm gonna go now effectively complete this criteria, I'm gonna be reinforced for it, or I'm gonna be taken away from the situation, or the scary thing's gonna move away, or my mum or my dad has got me back. Yes, yeah, so that 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 makes perfect sense. I mean, I I have border collies. Um way back in history, I was a sheep farmer. So I was actually working border collies, and yeah, especially those the sorts of breeds who were developed to close to work very closely with humans, they do really well with that kind of framework, don't they? Um, I mean, hundred percent. My boy, he does really well with routine. For most dogs, I don't like having a routine, but with him, he he is an anxious sort, and he thrives on routine and knowing that when this happens, that's going to happen. And I do exactly the same with you. You know, if he gets to the end of the lead, if he turns and comes back to me, that you know, that, that's jackpot city. You know, coming back to me is always a good thing. So I think it would be useful to have a little bit more of a look at what reactivity actually is in terms of the emotions that underlie it. Um, because obviously we all know sort of in the old days, it used to be if you thought that dogs had emotions, it was anthropomorphizing them and and. But we now know that that is not the case. We know that they have certain emotions. And one of the things that I find a lot is people will mistake reactivity for aggression. And the two are different. They can look very similar um, because a lot of what we term as reactive behaviours, I suppose you could sort of call them aggressive behaviour displays. Because aggression, like, I think the uh, definition is... the intent to cause moving forward with intent to cause harm the intent to cause harm whereas reactivity isn't necessarily always that um and they are slightly different no the the emotions that underlie reactivity a lot of the time a lot of it is to do with fear and anxiety um those two are slightly different fear is a response to something that's present in the environment so something scares you so if you've got a dog who is reactive to other dogs they're scared of other dogs Anxiety is anticipation of something bad happening. So when you get your dog, you go out of the front door and you see them looking as soon as you get outside and sort of hypervigilant. Yeah, that where is, is that other dog? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that is anxiety because they're looking for the bad thing to happen. And that that means that as, you know, as soon as you're going out on your walk, they've, they've got that level of stress, which, which means that they're going to be that much closer to reacting. 
Mm-hmm. So obviously when we understand the emotions, we want to know how we can help these emotions change. And what is really, really important to know, listeners, is that you can change these emotions. It's so clever. And that's what I love about behavior modification is it is possible to change their actual emotion that they're experiencing when exposed to the external stimulus, which to to keep on the theme, but could be another dog. Um, so there's a couple of things that we work with. Um, I'm going to try not keep this too techy, but there's things, something called counter conditioning and something called desensitization. These tend to be two of the main things. There are lots of elements to behavior modification, but these are two of the training techniques that we tend to use the most. There are others. Um, you know, there's there's management as well. That's a, that's a key part, I should add. So having lots in your toolkit, training things like watch me, um, go sniff, um, taking a U-turn, um, you know, all kind of things that you can do to kind of um, use hiding behind trees, <laughs> things like that that you can utilize in your environment. But yeah, so um, in terms of counter conditioning and how this works is it actually works with fundamentally pairing the sight of the scary thing with something good. And that's, that's it really in layman's terms, but that we're kind of looking at pairing the bad thing with, with the result being something good. And actually the dog also simultaneously not having an above threshold experience to this stimulus as well. I want to try and get too techy so it's understandable, but maybe you guys can help jump in and help explain. <laughs> For those that don't know me, like I say, I tend to work a lot with rescue organisations in the northwest of England. And basically my role within that is as a consultant, so help basically help with staff, staff development, but mostly just focusing on the more difficult cases, difficult dogs coming in, what do we do with them, how do we rehabilitate, how do we then rehome, and how do we support the dog when the dog's gone home? So... In terms of coming back to your question in regards to reactivity, then obviously we do get a lot of dog-to-dog issues, dog-to-people issues. Um, and I would, I'm happily, happily would like to say, but I'd like to say we do rehabilitate a lot. We do rehome a lot. Just recently as well, not to go off too much of a tangent, a dog I've been working with since January, Leo on my Instagram. He has literally recently, in the last two Yay. weeks, he's finally gone home. Form, for, formerly a reactive dog, no longer really a reactive dog, can walk past dogs, walk with other dogs, and he was literally, yeah, he was very, very reactive when he came in. So in terms of breaking it down into, in regards to sort of the training techniques and things that you were talking about, then yeah, 100% we need to think about obviously counter conditioning, uh, desensitization. I always say with formerly reactivity, particularly towards other dogs, I would like to think there's two sides of the coin in the sense that you have lead work where we are effectively trying to teach the dog to have a different emotional response to when they see the trigger. So I always tend to say start with start with distractions rather than triggers. And I know obviously you can nitpick and say, well, a trigger is a distraction. And obviously 100% yeah, it is. But what I'm saying is I would rather than sticking the dog in front of us, uh, say for example, a trigger, a dog straight away, and then trying to work that dog with food, I'll come on to food in a minute. Normally what I would do is get the dog in a situation where we can just use a low level, low level distraction. So whether that might even be, say for example, if we're working in rescue in an indoor environment or if I'm working with a one, uh, one-to-one client, again, in an indoor environment where effectively we can teach the dog to look at distractions or be around distractions and be able to remain focused and engage with with the handler of the owner. First of all, like I say, we're trying to build up a huge amount of reinforcement history. So what, what I mean by that is we can actually practice on a lot of occasions at a high level of frequency, trying to distract the dog with something low level and the dog's just remotely not interested and we can reward that choice by basically using a lot of the time using food. And then obviously we can build this up so... You can get to the stage where, so say for example, you've got a dog to dog, to dog reactive case. Teach the dog to look at people first. Teach the dog to look at people that are running. Teach the dog to look at people that are making noises. Those sort of things first. So you can get a huge amount of reinforcement 
before you even put the dog in front of the trigger that's actually going to make them feel uncomfortable because this way you're enabling the dog to to build up a skill set you're building up the criteria so effectively then when you can start to put that dog in front of a trigger i.e a dog then they're going to already have an element of pattern an already element of sort of default setting if you like or resurgence to use the more technical term so the dog actually understands oh shit right okay in this situation if i do X, Y, or Z, I'm going to get reinforced. So there's that element of it when you're working with your more technical side and you sort of counter conditioning. But also part of that as well is I like the dog to observe. So it depends on this is where it's interesting and where we can talk about it in a lot of detail. It comes down to the individual dog as well. So in terms of how breed specifics, previous reinforcement history, previous bad experiences, um, what I'm saying is when we're working with reactivity, I actually quite like a lot of the dogs that I work with to be able to look at the trigger, to be able to observe, to be able to see the dog moving, to be able to listen to the dog, to be able to yeah. smell the dog. Doesn't, totally agree. Not always for every single case because you tend to find sometimes if the dog's fixating, say, for example, like a herding breed, collie, kelpie, something like that. Not always. I've had it with, I've had it with shit suits before where you allow the dog to look <laughs> and then the dog's arousal levels are increasing. And then we know when dogs, like I say, arousal levels increase, they don't tend to make the best decision when they're in that position. So it doesn't necessarily mean for every single dog. The point I'm trying to make is, I always say this, food is not everything. Literally food is, is food is something that you, is like the icing on the cake for me in the sense that I don't tend to heavily rely too much on food. Yes, we use it. Yes, it's a salient currency. It's a good currency to be able to use. It's very, it's an easy transaction, let's be honest. But it's not something that you're not effectively, in my opinion, the flavor of that food isn't drastically going to change the dog's emotion. What you're trying to do is obviously allow the dog to feel comfortable and confident in that situation to then make a decision that you are then going to reinforce with with, with something. Obviously, the long term, yes, you're going to change the dog's emotional, emotion, emotional response to that. But what I'm saying is I like the dog to feel in control of the situation a lot of the time to a degree. I like the dog to be able to observe. It's, it's a point that I'm trying to make. But the other side of that coin, before I let you guys jump in, is is the almost the the experience side so you've got your lead work you, you want the technical stuff teaching the dog an alternative behavior teaching the dog to orientate back to you or to disengage from something or to look at something and not bark or whatever it is that you're trying to teach the dog the other side of that coin for me is the experience side the resocialization now when i say resocialization this does not mean playing off leading with dogs or even having people coming in your house if your dog doesn't like other people the resocialization side which you could argue is done when you do your technical stuff as well but it's more trying to, again, gently expose. And again, you could say this is happening when the count condition is taking place. But things like, as a basic example, obviously this is something that you would take time with and working within rescue, we've got access to lots of dogs. So we can build up the dog's element, uh, build up the dog's skill set when working, or the handler's skill set, working with the dog on the lead. So we can teach the dog to look at things or we can teach the dog to look at another dog. But it comes to the stage where I'm like, right, we're going to now work with this dog today in, in almost like a buddy system. So we can use this dog now as a reliable trigger if you like in the training session so again with reliability and predictability that can help reduce anxiety as well for the for z um reactive dog so it just allows things to become predictable so the dog can effectively understand what is going to happen and when so it just really really helps with dogs who are particularly anxious the point i'm trying to make is having that dog around another dog is important long term personally i, I for me anyway Having the to to the stage where we can start to think about parallel walking doesn't mean that the dog needs to approach, say hello, bum sniff, or anything such of the case. But essentially, having an experience where the dog can immerse themselves to to whatever sort of degree they want to, how far they want to go with it, in order to then change that emotional response as well, if that makes sense. So, more basic and very simple desensitization is what I'm trying to say. But for me, 
I'll get my clients, whether it's coaching clients or one-on-one or rescue, we get to the stage where the dog's got a good element, lead work, skill set, if you like, and we've got a good toolbox there. But it gets to the stage where, and it might mean standing 20 foot away and just allowing passing dogs to come to and fro in. But I personally, for me and where my clients make a huge amount of progress, is having like a buddy system, having a set-up dog, having a stooge dog that you can then start to implement some form of experience, even if it's just wandering around a car park together and that starts to get closer and you start to build up a relationship that way. But yeah, for me personally, mm-hmm. we can, I'm sure we can break off and talk about other things. That's typically how I always have it in, in my head anyway. Yeah. When you were talking about it, I was thinking, yeah, you're just talking about stooge dogs, which are, you know, a, such a vital um, tool, particularly in the extreme end of the spectrum as well. Because when you can control the environment in that, you can control the approach. And particularly when they are, so stooge dogs, by the way, um, they're a dog that's generally been trained to ignore other dogs. So they've been trained to be comfortable around dogs that are reactive they've been trained to kind of focus very much on the handler i do think that is a really 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 important part um of of it because at the end of the day we want the dog to be comfortable if sticking with dog on dog reactivity as we've we've kind of stuck with in, in this episode um, we want the dogs to be comfortable around other dogs and changing that emotional state is key um joe have you got any got any thoughts on yeah, I was sort of sitting here internally nodding to myself as you, you were talking, Simon, about the observing because one of my favourite tools to work with, with counter-conditioning is kind of like look at that where yeah, you can actually cue the dog to look at the trigger and then back to you but in that calm way and then you can kind of you can do the desensitisation by getting closer and looking for longer and that is such a useful tool for, for building up their confidence as much as anything, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I think I always like to make it clear to people, like you said at the start, when we are, first of all, heading into a case of reactivity, that we're not we're not running away from problems. You know, a lot. It's not what we're looking. To, certainly, what I'm not looking to do, in no. the sense that we're trying to give the dog a decompression period where we then introduce a toolbox and we then develop that toolbox and then we start bringing the dog back into certain environments, similar environments, or whatever it might be. But just from experience working with lots of different dogs in rescue, it does come to a stage where, okay, right, the dog's got a good level of skill set. The dog can do X, Y, and Z at this distance. Okay, now we need to push. Um, mm-hmm. But and, and for me personally, there's nothing wrong with pushing dogs provided that – because ultimately, in order to grow, we do have to push the dog out of the comfort zone. The problem is a lot of people tend to find pushing the dog too soon. The dog has got no sort of toolkit. Or too far, no or like pushing yeah. it too far. 100%. Yeah. dog's not got any sort of skill set. And more importantly, not a lot of confidence. Plus, like I say, handling issues, not to, this isn't to slate owners or anything like that, but a lot of the time the handling issues aren't brilliant just because why would they be? People aren't taught things. You can I can go and get a dog this evening for what I want. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to have any sort of qualifications. So what I'm raising is there's nothing wrong with pushing dogs mm-hmm. in the sense that to, to develop behavior. But the problem is a lot of the time people do it too fast, too soon and too hard on the dog as well. So the dog doesn't understand what's going on. The dog's now freaking out and shitting themselves. And then it just turns into it just turns into a mess. It's not structured enough. The dog hasn't got a clue what's going on. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with pushing dogs. And like we were talking before about, personally for me working in rescue as well, the, the whole purpose is obviously we're trying to rehabilitate these dogs. We're trying to get these dogs in a position where they're, unfortunately, it's a harsh way to put it, but they are effectively, they're more appealing to people. Nobody's going to want to come in and go, okay, well, this dog reacts to dogs at 50 meters away. Would you like to take this dog or would you like to take that dog? Unfortunately, they're going to pick the other dog. So for me personally, it comes to the stage where it's like, okay, we need to push this dog. Like I'm working with two dogs at the minute who are both reactive. Or certainly one was, she's, bless her to be fair, she's, she could probably argue she's formally reactive now. She can walk past most dogs. But we're trying to introduce her to another dog who is a lot more reactive, 
But we've got to, to the place for now where they're almost, we're trying to work towards them both being buddies. They've unfortunately been in kennels for quite a long time. They're not getting any real interest. So we're getting to the stage where now we're trying to buddy them up to hopefully to the stage where I'm pretty confident both of them can be mixed. It's going to take a little bit of time, obviously. But again, that in itself, that experience of being able to then share space with another dog or share sniffs with another dog or share five metres between another dog, for me personally, that has a much, much deeper impact than, say, for example, just, just lead work alone. It depends on the dog, depends on the individual, like what's going on and the circumstances. But the point I'm trying to raise is, is trying to understand the, the dog's ability, the dog's skill set, the dog's confidence level to then be able to make that decision to go, right, okay, now we need to push on because I feel like people get it backwards so much of the time. I do think this is really important and I genuinely am not saying this because we're all dog trainer behaviour consultants. It is really important to work with a professional if you've got a reactive dog because there is no physical way you can know all of this. Um, if you don't, work and do it day in day out like people that the reason why people call themselves reactivity specialists is because they specialize in that area and work day in day out i'm not a reactivity specialist i do work with reactive cases but i don't work with the extreme end because i don't think i work enough in that day in day out to to give it what it needs you guys do um and i do think that it's not about needing to have support forever but if you get the right support early on or get the right support when you're able to financially and you have the time and things like that it really 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 will make a huge difference to your dog's future and it's not just about the fact that um the dog is going to benefit you you have all these unwanted undesired behaviors right dog, um, dog walks are stressful etc actually when we're looking at a deeper level the welfare of the dog itself we want to improve their life we don't want them going out on every walk and feeling like this it's that can that must be a horrible way to live and be imagine every time you leave your front door you're like panic attack you know anyone that comes in you want to pounce them because you're so scared like it's the same and and you wouldn't want your child or your friend or anyone in your family to feel like that so I think it is actually important that we give the dogs the time which leads me on to I don't know if it's the final point but it's one of the points I wanted to make and we discussed this pre pre-recording is this stuff takes time um this isn't an overnight fix I think what you said, one of your cases that maybe you've been working with since January is now doing really well. We're, we're October. So, and that is a, prof- a trained professional working on a regular basis with this dog um, who really knows his shit. Uh, so it is going to take, you know, the average owner a long time, but it is possible. But, and we touched on this as well, Simon, I know it's something you talk about on your social media quite a lot. We're in the society where we want instant results. And unfortunately, it's changing the way you view things a little bit. Um, and kind of actually you've got to learn and a bit about yourself. You've got to learn some patience. You've got to learn that things aren't going to be instant gratification. It's not with reactivity. There's almost none. You will have some, but it's sporadic. You're going to have, it's not linear. You're going to have days where your dog copes better. You're going to have days where your dog copes less because much like with us, sometimes we don't sleep well sometimes we have a headache dog can't communicate that with us the only way they can do is in their behavior so if one day they can cope with the trigger better and other days they can't it's not because you've progressed it's just the nature of behavior modification 100 uh, it's yeah absolutely it's a case of it comes down to the individual dog again which we've talked about a lot but yeah i'll be honest with you sometimes i can go and work with the case and i can think mm, yeah this dog's going to work quite fast um, in the sense that the dog has potentially got a smaller threshold than other dogs, so the dog can mm-hmm. cope with dogs being at a closer distance, or they can cope with dogs making noises, or they can cope, say, for example, um, whatever it is, you get what I'm saying. So sometimes you can you can define it as fast if you want to define it, but it depends, again, it depends on the individual. Some people might think a month is too slow. Some people might think that's really fast. It just depends. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the thing, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. For me, we live in a world now, everything is instant. All our shopping, 
TV, like literally everything you can get probably same day, next day. Everything is like a massive amount of instant gratification. Social media in itself, obviously of all which we are we are on there, but that's essentially what it is. That's the it's a business of self gratification. So when it comes to dog training, when it comes to behavior, when it comes to anything, self development, business, all that kind of thing, which again comes under the same umbrella as being a dog trainer, behaviorist, business is part of it. Unfortunately, like I say, anything worth value does take time, does take commitment. It does take that element of repetition and frequency and structure. So yeah, it depends on the perspective of the person. Obviously, it depends on, again, this is where people always ask the same question as we'll ask you guys. How long does it take? What time frame would you give? And I just say it depends how, how hard you're working. It depends on what structure you're doing, what sort of training that you're doing. But, but for me personally, yeah. like the key things for anybody listening to this and thinking I've got a reactive dog, what the hell am I going to do? The, the most important thing personally for me is, is as we talked about to begin with is that element of having a week a couple of weeks maybe even a month of trying to get your dog to, to chill out and decompress because of, without going too much information your dog's going to be producing a shit ton of adrenaline cortisol other stress hormones as well dog's going to be saturated and it's interesting before we were talking about is your dog you know fear, fear is it fear based or is your dog just a generally anxious dog and predicting bad things that are going to happen all the time because if that is the case then you might need to take even longer just to get the dog to chill out give the dog out and maybe some maybe medication you know, in some cases they they can play a part um i was just thinking that as well yeah i mean that's not something i can advise on no um, yeah of I, course. I, know, I know obviously people would go down that road but yeah essentially giving the dog outlets to feel good um obviously medical stuff 100 percent but the biggest thing aside from all that is criteria, which we've not really we've, we've touched on briefly, but criteria is like I do a lot of I'm doing a couple of seminars coming up in the next I'm working away in the next few weeks. And I'm gonna be focusing heavily on human click training. Um which sounds a bit daft and it, I'm working with I'm working with other trainers actually, but the main point I'm raising that is because criteria is absolutely like everything <laughs> in terms of like breaking criteria down, thinking about motor patterns, motor skills, all these kind of things where we forget how fucking confusing we are so much of the time. We do. We forget how poor our delivery is, our timing is. And this is not to say everybody t- to feel bad about themselves. What I'm saying is criteria is so, so important. Breaking things down for the dog so that the dog can understand what you actually want them to do. But also things, again, when you're dealing with anxiety, when you're dealing with fear-based stuff, it's the more, and we talked about this before, sometimes giving instruction as well so that the dog can feel, because sometimes not all dogs necessarily want to sometimes dogs will feel better if they've got an instruction to the element of not that necessarily we've got control of the situation but just feeling that again that reliability and that predictability really but yeah criteria is something that's massively i think skipped over a lot of the time i think it's as simple as getting in front of a dog and doing x y and z but a lot of the time again it's building criteria up in certain in certain different ways and again it depends on that dog as well and lifestyle obviously we talked about i think it's some something that struck me sort of in in what you were saying especially with the criteria and with our our timing and how we move and hold ourselves you've got that disconnect between canine language and human language you know we are very very different animals from an evolutionary perspective and just the way that we are programmed to think about things. We're always taught, like, from when we're very young, that having a dog is easy because everyone has dogs and it's really simple. You know, you have a dog, you take them for a walk, and that that's as complicated as it gets. But the reality is it's very different because we are these two very different species to actually understand the relationship and how dogs are. We don't just get that as soon as we get our first dog. And 
we're all professionals, so we've all spent time learning. But your, your average person getting their first dog, there's so much that they don't know. And that is not their fault because you can 100%. only do the best that you can with what you know. Um, it, it's really important. And this, for me, is the case whether you have a reactive dog or not. It's really important to be open to learning because we're all learning all the time, you know. I look back at things that I did, especially with my dog, that I absolutely, you know, I cringe at now because I got things so wrong. But I didn't know. Now I know I do things mm -hmm. differently. And that that for me is mm -hmm. something really important for people, especially people who have reacted dogs, because like we said earlier, it is really hard to be that person on the end of the lead. But it is so important for people to know that it's okay to not know. It's okay to have got things wrong and to admit that you've got things wrong because there are people that out there that can and will help. All of us, for instance. Ego plays a big part in dog training, dog behaviour. Um, and I think a lot of working with animals is dropping that ego because um, we work with dogs day in, day out, and I'm learning every day. And I think if the owner, average owner, has that more of that attitude, um, because I don't know, sometimes you go into people, I've had dogs for 20 years and I know, you know, everyone can learn, I can learn. Um, maybe we all learn from each other a little bit in this in this podcast even. So I think that dropping that ego around dogs is really, really important and kind of being willing to learn from your dog, learn about yourself, challenge yourself, push yourself, um, but also keeping mindful of your own mental health. Um, it is really, really important. You cannot provide for your dog, particularly if they have a behavioural issue like reactivity. You cannot help them if you're not looking after number one. And because you can't 100%. be expected, if you're going out over threshold with your dog, your dog's going to go over threshold. We've talked about what threshold is and on other episodes, so most of our listeners will know what that means. But it's basically, imagine going and working with your dog when you're having a panic attack and your dog's having a panic attack. It's just going to be a nightmare. For those at home thinking they've got a reactive dog, it's really stressful, which it is, and taking them for a walk is not enjoyable. You know, and there'll be days where you lose your shit with your dog. Like, it happens, I've done it. Do you know what I mean? And we're, 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 all, we're all human. You bollock into your dog or you correct your dog or maybe you're even slightly harsher, which yeah, we're human. We're human at the end of the day. As long as you're not using it as an ongoing training tool, do you know what I mean? And sound, but yeah, you're going to have days where you lose your shit, you're going to shout, you might, do you know yeah. what I mean? It's one of them, yeah. you're going to feel probably bad, really bad about it afterwards. Yeah. But at the end of the day, your dog's doing similar because they're stressed and you're going to do similar because you're stressed. Mm -hmm. So it's just a case of, we're not all, you know what I mean? We're all human. We're all emotional. We're all stressed to a degree. We've got other things going on in our lives. So just to raise the point, yeah. it's going to happen. But yeah, just like forgive yourself. <laughs> oh, that is such an important point to forgive yeah. yourself because you know, we talk so much about what is going on with the dogs mentally and emotionally. Those basic mechanisms are exactly the same in us. We have the exact same hormones, the exact same reactions. So, you know, and it is stressful. So, yeah, it is so important to be forgiving to yourself because... The bad days happen. If you're going out on a walk with your dog and they're reactive, and like Simon said, they see 10 dogs on one walk, it is like you waking up in the morning and your alarm not going off, you're hitting every red light on the way to work, you spill your coffee. By the time you've got to work, you're fucked. Uh, you're kind of like absolutely brain gone. I cannot cope with any more stress today. It's called trigger stacking. But, you know, that's the same thing. Like your dog then can't cope with other stuff because there's been too much happen already in that day. Um, and it's important as well that humans trigger stack as well, as I just said. So it is important that you're giving yourself time out. You're giving yourself a 
a break um and it's okay to be like you know what i'm just not gonna go out for a walk today because i i can't handle it it's far better you have a day at home you do some mental stimulation do some training with your dog work on your criteria things like that at home it, and just chill and enjoy your dog and do some some stuff that's going to build that bond and that relationship then forcing yourself to go out on a walk when you're not able to cope if your dog can't cope 100 and i think as well just to just to reiterate a point i was making before it's not that we're trying to run away from problems and think okay well we'll just avoid dogs forever that's not what we're trying to do it's the same mm-hmm. as like i say i always make it very clear that we're not trying to just the tactic is not to avoid dogs for forever that's really not the tactic it's more a case of getting the dog in the emotional state where they can actually then be pushed. They can actually then, okay, right, we're going to challenge you now. We're going to sit here for another two minutes or we're going to bring another dog in or we're going to bring a dog that's going to bark back at you or we're going to have a dog that's going to be moving faster. Do you know what I mean? We, we do push them. The example I always give is, say, for example, if you were going into, you know, if you were going into a working environment, if you're going into a new job and you so much pressure was put on top of you. So in terms of that environment, the whole social perspective of where you were, and then, like I said, you put a serious amount of pressure was put on top of you to, com- to be able to complete certain things, to meet certain deadlines, and you was getting more and more and more and more pressure. The actual sort of situ- the actual experience of being in that environment and then failing constantly again and again and again, like I say, it's, it's not, as opposed to, say, for the other way around where people were slowly just drip-feeding things in, you got to understand the routines, you got to understand the patterns in what is potentially going to happen within this environment, and then people started pushing and pushing and pushing, it would make such a huge difference as opposed to doing it the other way around. You'd feel a lot more confident. You'd feel like you could take a lot of shit. You'd actually be, if anything, almost open to the challenge to a certain degree. But I always try and make it clear that think if you think of it like that and you want the dog effectively, yeah, to start slow and then we start pushing and then we start really challenging them. Yeah, some days we might have an off day. We might lose our shit. Our dog might lose our shit. We get back on the bike effectively and then we go again. But I always make it clear mm-hmm. to clients we're not just going to run away forever because, like I say, we're that's not what it's about. It's about having the understanding at a bit slightly deeper level. Again, we're going to start slow and we're going to build up and, and start to put the dog under pressure when it's the right time to do so. And that would depend on the dog. Some dogs might be sound after a week and they want, okay, right, now we're going to, some dogs, it might be months, some dogs, it just depends. It really does just depend on the circumstances. Also depends how long the behavior has been rehearsed. You know, if, if some, some, dog guardians owners will come in and it's just been something that dog's done in the last few weeks in which case you put in some you put in some good um good stuff from from there you, you'll kind of teach them to do the right things and that kind of behavior dissipates because it's not continued to be rehearsed or practiced so you know each case is so varied and um and each dog's so different and each person behind the dog is different um, because a lot of what we do is reading the owner guardian and kind of knowing their capabilities knowing learning their learning styles so everyone learns different some people learn better by being shown stuff some people learn better by reading some people will learn by getting verbally explained um you know there's all different learning styles that humans have so um it's kind of working with what works best for the, the team everyone involved and equally my style of working activity might not suit you and there might be a better trainer that suits your behaviorist. So it doesn't mean to say that that person doesn't know this stuff. It just, it's all about dynamic, a bit like therapy. You kind of need to have a rapport and an understanding between each other. And, and some might not always be a good fit. That's why I always get my clients on the phone or we have a Zoom and I'm like, let's chat. Let's see if we're going to be a good fit um, for, for, the, for the dog and for the client. 
Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Honestly, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today's today's episode. We'd love to have you back at some point um, if you haven't had enough of us. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been really, really helpful. And I know, guys, I know this has probably been quite heavy and there's a lot of maybe science and, and term, trainer behavior terminology. So if you guys aren't sure about anything, DM us, you know. And, and it's important to say that Jay obviously works with a lot of reactivity clients um, uh, remotely, but Simon does as well. I think you've got one. I mean, you've got like a workshop um, like that people can can get a reactive one. Yeah. So my services are primarily online these days. Like I say, I yeah. work as a, as a consultant as well. And I do do one-to-ones, but I'll be honest with you, I'm, I am working through a waiting list with that. But typically mm-hmm. I too, I have a coaching I have a couple of coaching plans that work with people online. And the main reason that I'm a big believer in online coaching now going forward, just because of the value, not to step on anybody else's toes, just because of the value that you can offer. Um, So in terms of what I would maybe charge in a two, three hour consultation process, I can charge that in a month. And that means back and forth daily stuff. So daily support, daily coaching, daily critiquing with videos and uh, voice notes and things like that. So typically a lot of my reactivity clients, because of, you know, people who have reactive dogs, they do require a certain amount of support. So it works really well with that. But yeah, as you were saying, I have finished. I have uh, a reactivity webinar series. This is three parts, mm-hmm. um, where again, similar to everything we've talked about today, in a bit, but just in a bit more detail because it's me waffling on for a couple of hours, and then there's a Q and A. So there's three. The last one is due to come out in November, but the other two are available to to download and purchase and download from my website as well. Yeah. Um, which again talks it in, in a massive amount of detail everything from we've talked about today about decompressing to then starting training and then developing training even further to get to the stage where you're able to pass dogs or pass people or whatever it is that you're looking for but yeah those can be purchased and downloaded from my website which is the muknote.com it's funny actually when you introduce me to simon moody people think i have no idea who that is literally nobody not literally nobody knows my name it's funny <laughs> <laughs> I always forget people like what's your name I'm like oh Simon uh, what is my name <laughs> I, I'm the yeah, mutt so people just know me as the mutt nut. Uh, but yeah the mutt is all you can find out all the information on there or on Instagram as well yeah I was going to say what are, your, what are your Instagram and TikTok handles so people yeah, can literally find the mutt nut, um on Instagram and on TikTok as well TikTok is new going to be smashing that out in the next few months reluctantly but uh, mm-hmm. yeah the mutt nut, which yeah. is just to clarify it's two T's on mutt and one T on nut. Honestly, there are people that try and send me emails and spell it wrong. Uh, but yeah, the mutt nut on, t- on TikTok and on Instagram as well. Yeah. And then Jay, Jay as well has got some books. Um, you've got one specifically on reactivity. Two. Um, I've got two specifically two. on reactivity. Yeah. So Jay's got some really good books. So check those out as well. What, what are they called again, Jay? Yes. Fight or Fright, a Reactive Dog Guardian's Handbook, which is sort of very much kind of for, for your person who's just discovered they've got a reactive dog and have no idea where to start. And then I've also got Understanding Reactive Dogs, Why Dogs React and How to Help, which is a bit more in-depth on the science of why and what we can do just to mm. sort of help them feel better about the world. Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways there. If, if a book is best for you, go get a book. If so, looking at a webinar or maybe working with someone one-to-one, maybe check out either of these guys do one-to-ones, but you've also got Simon's um, webinar, which you can check out. Um, but yeah, I want to say thank you again so much for your time, Simon. We really appreciate it. We know how busy you are. So no, no, don't be silly. It's, it's, yeah. always, it's always a pleasure to get invited on and chat with um, good like-minded professionals as well. So no, thank you very much for, for having me on. It's really is appreciated. Yeah, you're welcome. And yeah, um, as always, if you need me, you can contact me at Canine Friends. That is on Instagram, TikTok, and it's canine-friends.com for the website. Um, and Jay? Yeah, you can get me at Good Guardianship on Facebook and Instagram or at goodguardianship.com. Bab. That's it. I'm going to shut up now. You don't have to listen to me anymore. That's the end of today's episode. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.